Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be today. Oh, today we have the honor, the privilege of having Science Mike with us. If you haven't heard of him yet, he is the host or co-host of the Liturgist podcast. He also hosts his own podcast, Science Mike. He has written a book, Finding God in the Waves. He is a speaker. He is a leader. There are so many adjectives that I could use to describe him. I would consider him one of my mentors that I've had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with. Thank you, Mike, for being with us today. It is my absolute pleasure, Becca. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Now, Just a moment ago, before we hit record, Mike made it very clear that he did not want to get any of these questions beforehand. So he is getting this question live, raw, for the very first time. And it's the same question that we ask all of our guests as we kick off our conversation. And that question is, Mike, when, inevitably, the capitalistic machine of Hollywood pays you an obnoxious amount of money for your life rights to produce a biopic based on the story of Science Mike. <laughs> and, in, and in some alternate universe wherein they actually have the humanity to allow you to speak into the casting of yourself, who will have the honor of playing Mike McHarg, the infamous Science Mike, on the silver screen? And note, it can be you if you feel so inclined. Oh, it would definitely not be me. I hate acting. Um, I would say Adam Savage because uh, from Mythbusters, because we look alike, but he's older than I am, so he'd have to play me. He could play me in the future in the uh, like a know, retrospective. Epilogue, I guess yes, yeah. he could be. He could be me looking back from I don't know. Eight years in the future. I don't know how much older Adam is, <laughs> but it's a little bit. Oh uh, gosh. So, uh, knowing Adam's not available, it's definitely going to be Ed Sheeran, clearly. Okay. (laughs) Just the first young ginger I could think of. Fresh off some Game of Thrones cameos, now ready. That's right. Now he's going to play Science Mike, who now, oddly enough, is British. Well, all of our American-made superheroes are played by British actors, so I don't see... Just continuing a long tradition, yeah. Absolutely. Ed Sheeran. There you go. Perfect. Love it's it. A, it's a it's a terrible choice. <laughs> it could be a musical. Uh, if it's a musical, then, then I've got to pick a I've got to pick a baritone or a bass. You know, and I've I've never I can't even hear Ed Sheeran sing, much less <laughs> sing that I myself. That's Finding a, God in the Waves, the Science yeah. Mike story, a musical. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was writing a musical a little while about the start of the liturgists. Really? And uh, the, the, the main big musical number was called I Don't Believe Anything. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Oh, uh, gosh, yes. I haven't in some time. I've seen it once years ago, but I have seen it. So one of the kind of tertiary plot points is that the main 
male lead character played by Jason Siegel, his dream is to create a musical with like Muppet style puppets. And he does it. It's like this gothic vampire musical with puppets. They, they show it at the end. That's kind of where my head went when you were describing this. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I wasn't going to do puppets, but puppets are fine. That actually might be preferable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you can actually then be played by like Frank Oz. You know, the puppet. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, that, that would be like, that'd be rid- a ridiculously overqualified voice actor slash puppeteer. I mean, it would really like, it would probably um, ruin his professional reputation, honestly. I mean, perhaps, but I feel like he's earned the opportunity to kind of expand his creative horizons. And I'm sure at least a few people have referred to you in the kind of progressive faith sphere as a Yoda of sorts. And honestly, like, it it really should be Muppets. I'd be so easy to Muppet. (laughs) (laughs) I would be easier to Muppet than find an actor to play me. Like, just put some black rimmed glasses and a red beard with a white chin on a puppet and everybody will immediately know it's me and let's be honest my co-host uh, michael gunger not the hardest guy to muppet either we would both be really easy to muppet uh, oh, I can we're see talking about the hard issues today on uh, permission to be <laughs> well, we've now created a scenario, a purely hypothetical, fanciful scenario, but one wherein I will be genuinely disappointed if it doesn't come to fruition. <laughs> oh my goodness, I have tears. Oh, y'all are killing it. So, on, on that wonderful note, Mike, uh, let's talk a little bit about, and we'll go serious for just a little bit, and then we can bring it back around okay. to the puppets. Big, big shifting gears, I'm letting all joy leave my body. <laughs> Feeling somber. (laughs) Oh shit! Um, (laughs) So um, seriously, folks, I'm trying to compose myself. This podcast was born out of three things, and those three things were whiskey. Oh, always. (laughs) Well, in the context of an old fashioned, sustained by. That's like how it nurses whiskey, not born by, but sustained by. Okay, I see. (laughs) Yes. All right, we're getting serious. It's hard. I'm, I'm slow. I'm getting there. Uh, David pushed us into the water. My husband, Jesse Epley, pushed us into the water. And a class I took last summer really laid some foundation called Making Your Mark. And the uh, teachers of that class was Mike McCark and um, Bradley Grin. And so mm. this, our foundation, you actually have a big piece in that, Mike, and we are very grateful for that. But my question to you on a slightly serious non-Muppet note is where do you think you started finding or seeking permission to be who you are? Does that make sense? Mm. Was it as a child, an adult, where was some of your pivotal moments? <sighs> Wow. Well, I grew up in the South. So there's not a lot of permission to be in the South. No, there's not. There's a lot of very prescribed social norms and gender roles in the rural Southeast. Um, so it wasn't that anybody was like actively trying to make me not be myself. It's that the system of the South tries to prevent anyone mm. from being themselves. My favorite thing in the world are... Um, southern women in their late 50s and up <laughs> because they like just finally are like ah i'm done with this shit 
and they just start <laughs> to be themselves regardless. And um, I think I had like probably in high school, I started to get glimmers of who I'd like to be because I failed so hard at being your traditional Southern man. I just had no aptitude. <laughs> <for it. laughs> uh, and I think in high school, it's the first time I had authority figures, namely a couple of teachers who kind of saw me and encouraged mm -hmm. me uh, to start to be who I was, to not be um, shamed for mm -hmm. my empathy and my sensitivity, mm -hmm. that my unconventional learning styles, um, it's where I started to actually uh, gain skill as a communicator was in oh, high really? school, especially as a writer. Yeah, there's uh, one teacher in particular that really helped me find, start to find my writing mm -hmm. voice. Um, but it probably wasn't until uh, well into adulthood, post-atheism, uh, that I really started to figure out who I was and, and find the permission to be who I was and, and nothing mm -hmm. else. Love that. So I want to point out something as well because I've had the privilege of following you um, through your books and social media and of course the liturgist and the alien and the robot. And one thing that I've seen through what you've been willing to share is how much work you have done on personal work. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. Um, when we see life's change from trauma, from when we're younger to now, we don't always see or pay attention to the fact that it takes a lot of work. Hmm. And I think I was telling David this the other day, that's something I really admire in you because I have family um, who I see potential in them, but they haven't stepped forward to do the work. And one thing about be finding permission to be that I think some of us don't realize is that if we are willing to step forward and try new things and try new experiences in regards to growing our individual selves, it's amazing where life can take us. And I think you're a true example of that. That's not really a question. That's really, you know, more of an <laughs> observation. It's very kind. It's a kind <laughs> statement, really. I appreciate yeah. that. One thing I've been confronting a lot lately is kind of the myth of individuality. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I made some decision to change who I was. I responded to different invitations I received in my environment, mm -hmm. and that was other people. Mm -hmm. So I've gone through some major life changes, but my wife, Jenny, has always been resolute in her commitment to our relationship. Mm -hmm. So I've never wondered that as I grow and learn uh, that she's, you know, putting some conditions on who I am in order to stay in relationship with me. And so that gives me this, this like fundamental security that when, you know, mm. voices in the media or voices in our culture or just voices on the internet are saying that I'm doing things wrong or I'm not a good person mm. or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I know Jenny's there. Mm. And so that like invitation into stability is one I accepted. And mm. then, you know, probably the biggest invitation to be myself I've ever received was becoming friends with Michael Gunger, who all of the weirdest stuff about my personality that I always hid from people are his favorite things about me. Um, and so just that sense of unconditional acceptance had a really, really transformational role in who I am that's continued, by the way. Michael and I have, have been close kind of since the day we met, but there's been a deepening and a maturing our relationship even in the last few weeks mm. that's remarkable mm. um 
And then, you know, uh, through Michael, I met another friend named William Matthews, who became a, a really close friend. Mm-hmm. And William has in, invited me into mutual vulnerability yeah. uh, and mutual dependency in a way that I'm not used to and wasn't mm-hmm. comfortable with at first. And then I met Hillary McBride and Hillary invited me into a reconciliation with the pains of the past and in a process of learning to be more in touch with and understand my own feelings Mm -hmm. and the things that happen in my body. And so, you know, if I look at the media arc of, of what I've looked like in public for the last 24 months, sure, I bet it does look like I've been on this incredible journey and making all these choices. But really what's been happening is I've just been responding to invitations that arrived through relationship. And it's not just the ones I mentioned. Those are obviously notable ones from my my spouse and the co-host of the podcast. But I have a number of very, very close, intimate, and sincere friendships that are always inviting me to take the next step Mm. into becoming myself. So, just to kind of piggyback off that, one thing that I've appreciated about you know, you talked about the the public or you know visible part of your your work and, and and career over the last fourteen plus months is there's been I feel like just a good balance between a lot of the personal interior work that that we're kind of naming and discussing and talking about here in relationship to other important influences and invitations you've received from those relationships and whatnot on the one hand. But then on the other hand, what I think draws a lot of people to your work, I know I've been drawn to this personally as well, is the way that you approach macro social issues, you know, things like climate change. I know one of the things Beck and I talked about discussing with you is a lot of your commentary on the nature of social media and the way that the psychological and emotional effects of that are tied into the profit-driven agendas of the parent companies and things like that. And so there's been this kind of big macro level. So you've, you've kind of held this balance between, you know, the internal and the external, the personal and the societal. And in the midst mm-hmm. of that, I think another reason people are drawn uh, both to you specifically, but then also to uh, your podcast platform and your co-hosts and whatnot is you still somehow in there through the journey and amidst unpacking and talking about a lot of sometimes really dark and, and kind of potentially paralyzing stuff, there's still been kind of a, a sense of hope, a sense of joy in there. And so in all of that, as you know, and holding the tension between the interior and the exterior, between the personal and the structural, between really everything that kind of has made up the content of your platform, has there been any one thing or any handful of things that stand out to you that have kind of allowed you to navigate that and still find hope, still find joy, still find, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of something to hold on to that kind of keeps you moving forward amidst what I'm sure have been rewarding, but also difficult journeys on the one hand, and also just navigating and educating people on some sobering realities on the other. Oh, gosh, as always, the most compelling examples come from listening to women mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for, for someone like me, who's a white guy, grew up in an evangelical context, I'm used to being hopeful because it looks like everything's going mm-hmm. my way. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you talk about something like climate change, or you talk about an increasing awareness of structural racism in our country and across the world, then that hope is much harder to find because it doesn't look like things are going our way. I mean, how many white liberals for the first time felt 
real disenfranchisement when Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election. (laughs) And yeah, and we got into this this, like national state of mourning and uh, my friends of color were like, hi, welcome. (laughs) Uh, This is where we've been the whole time. And Austin Channing Brown is a Mm, hero of mine, just an absolute hero. Um, And so in her her book, she writes about the shadow Mm -hmm. of hope, um, which is a hope about an outcome we will likely not see in our lives. And she talked about how the shadow of hope is uh, at play in her advocacy and the the work, the advocacy of all black women, uh, creating a potential bright future that they will likely Mm -hmm. never see. And uh, I've been really lucky in that uh, Austin Channing is a hero of mine. She's one of my favorite authors, but she's also Mm -hmm. my friend. Um, And so her communicating the realness of her life struggle as she's become this, you know, incredibly well-known author and speaker and advocate and seeing her do her own work to hold on to that shadow of hope. and she and, and other women of color in my life encouraging me to not just read their books, but to be in real relationship mm. with them. That has been the way that I have maintained some sense of optimism and how I communicate in the face of terrifying and existential mm-hmm. threats. Mm-hmm. Um, because to sink into the magnitude of the threat before us would be to stop trying to make mm-hmm. things better, which would only hasten uh, the worst mm-hmm. to come and lose any chance of preventing it. So I simply listen to and submit to the example mm-hmm. of women of color working in the shadow of hope for a bright future that I may in fact not mm-hmm. see myself. I just want to emphasize the best things in my life these last few years have been starting by including more voices of color and more women and more women of color and more indigenous people Mm -hmm. on my bookshelf. That's where it started. Uh, But where it's gone is I don't have a lily white friend Mm -hmm. community anymore. And that has actually made my life better and richer and deeper and had profound impact on my work and what I care about Mm -hmm. in my work. and I, I would, you know, statistically, I understand that most white people have very, very homogenous social spheres. And anything you can do to begin to change that is good and is necessary mm-hmm. and is right. One of the people we are privileged to call friend is Tommy Allgood. And I think you know him, Mike. Oh, I love Tommy. Yes, he's one of um, my very dear friends. Um, and he says, hello. And uh, <laughs> and we had the privilege of having Austin um, Channing here and Charlotte back this past spring. Um, she not only spoke on a Friday evening, but spoke some hard truths to services on a Sunday morning to a white audience wow. that needed to hear. Isn't she just the most compelling speaker you've uh, ever absolutely. heard? Absolutely. Hands down. Like literally the most. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I, I get my my, my oh, love no. and affection for Austin is oh, no. limitless. Oh, it's shared. We had the uh, distinct honor. She was just beginning her first evening talk right when her Kickstarter for the next question passed its goal. And so we got to celebrate that with her, which was very exciting. Mm. And so that was a lot of fun. 
and also it was fun. I was in the car with her and Tommy, and to watch Tommy be starstruck with her was just the best thing ever. <laughs> I'm telling on you, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> so, Mike, it, I don't know if you want to talk about it just yet, and if you don't, we can go somewhere else. But uh, I think you are working on a new book. Is that true? I finally, finally, <laughs> finally, finally sent in the manuscript to my publisher. And I should see uh, the start the edits, you know, here in a little over a week. I'm pretty quick in edits, though, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that process doesn't take very long. the The feedback I usually get is, "Oh, you've you've sent it in already." <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, if I tr I trust my editor, so my editing process looks like me hitting accept all changes without even reviewing them. <laughs> And then I go through and I look for the comments because comments are things that they like need me to make a decision on or write something new or whatever. And then I just do that and then I just send it back. <laughs> uh, so it was really fast. Um, yeah. So my next book is uh, it'll be out. I mean, I don't know if I can say this. I don't know if it's official, but I think it's going to be out April 28th, 2020. Okay. Um, they're delaying it a little bit because they want to have more time to send uh, galleys around because mm. I think they're pretty excited about this one, which I'm glad. I, I thought it was terrible when I sent it in, so I'm glad <laughs> they liked it. And uh, it's my, it's, this is the book I've always wanted to write, Finding on the Waves. I actually didn't want to write. Really? Okay. Uh, I thought I'd already told that story enough on podcasts and I didn't think I had mm. anything gotcha. to add. I ended up, I ended up really liking the book, but it's not the book I wanted to write. This book is the book I wanted to write. It's called You Are a Miracle. Uh, and a pain in your ass <laughs> understanding the hidden forces that make you you and uh i kind of the elevator pitch i've got for it is how to live a good life while your whole life falls apart okay it's it's got some themes around new masculinity and uh neurodivergence and just the the struggle we all feel and the difference in what our our thoughts and feelings are on the inside and what ends up manifesting itself in the world. Like, why why are we short with people when we don't want to be? Mm. Um, why is it so hard to make choices that move towards the goals we want to make? And why are our own feelings so often mysterious and overpowering and unpredictable to us when they are, in fact, us as well? So this is a, a cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary uh, or behavioral economists, behavioral econ—I'm <laughs> out of spoons today. A behavioral economics view, cognitive psychology, and behavioral neuroscience interrogation into the self and behavior, and even some of Paul's dilemma. The Apostle mm. Paul. Mm -hmm. I am a Christian, so Paul writes, uh, "I don't understand myself. I do what I think is wrong, and I don't do what I think is right." And so I thought we'd ask science to look at that dilemma, and that's how we got. You are a miracle and a pain in your ass. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of that and the science portion, and where are you as far as, as far as like mysticism and people who are mystics? Or I'm curious what your thoughts on mysticism are currently. Like, would you consider yourself a mystic in any way? You bet your ass I would. Yeah. But how does the science hold hands with that? I guess that's where I'm going with that question. Oh, thank you. I was like, oh, am I a mystic? <laughs> yes. I was <laughs> Do I like science? Also, yes. 
<laughs> I was getting I think there. they're so compatible. I think they're absolutely compatible. Science at its heart is a discipline that tells us to hold knowledge loosely. Mm. Nothing is ever proven definitively and no model is ever 100% accurate to reality in science. Science tells us there are limits on our ability to understand the world. Now, that doesn't mean we wallow in ignorance mm. and that all ideas are equal. If I think that the acceleration of gravity on our planet Earth is 9.8 meters per second squared, and you think the you know gravity doesn't accelerate at all because things are held on Earth by an invisible jello. Our two ideas are not equally good models of reality. <laughs> My model is demonstrably better. Um, but the fact that I rely on evidence to form my beliefs in science means that new evidence can always change my ideas. Mm -hmm. It means I have to acknowledge that even my most deeply held ideas, things like, um, well, like the standard model of physics, which does such a good job of describing quantum behaviors. I know it's incomplete. It doesn't describe gravity at all. So then we would talk about mysticism, which is an approach to spirituality mm -hmm. that says simply that that which we call God cannot be accurately described, but can only be experienced. I don't find anything unscientific mm. about that whatsoever. My knowledge of God doesn't cause me to create some description of the world in conflict with science. When I'm studying the world, I use science. Mm. But when I am investigating these great rituals and traditions and states of being and knowing, that our wisdom traditions have offered us, then I'm comfortable sitting in the mystery of different stories that take me different places without having to master them by describing them as some immutable, non-negotiable portion of physical reality. To do so would demean the experience in a very similar way that reducing the experience of love to neurochemistry would not encapsulate the fullness of that experience either. In the... I I'm not going to say Christian circles, but maybe more some of the fundamental, maybe even evangelical circles. The way you just described it makes complete sense to me, but yet I am seeing this fear of mysticism come up. I don't know. It's it's weird because it's, I feel like the, the fundamental church is afraid of the hard science because that takes away from a belief in the, that the Bible is not fallible. And, but then there's mysticism and then it's like, that's too woo woo or whatever you want to phrase it as. And so for me, I don't know if it's just because I have newly discovered mysticism and really am passionate about it, that it seems brand new to me and that there's more of a drawing towards it from a lot of people around me and what I'm, you know, my eyes are just open to it. Or I'm curious if there's really a surgence of people going in the mystical path. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I feel a little flat-footed as I'm not aware of any sociological data about the prevalence or trends surrounding mysticism. Mm -hmm. I know that people are more reticent to identify with specific religious traditions today. Mm -hmm. Americans specifically are becoming mm -hmm. less religious, but not less spiritual. Mm -hmm which would, you know, I would think would tell me there's some degree of mystical orientation at play. Yeah, that makes sense. But I, 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 
I could only conjecture, and I'm I'm wildly uninterested in my conjecture. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, <laughs> I think I'll just admit I don't have any any good data on that. So, in a way, piggybacking off of that, uh, because that even harkens back to your answer to an earlier question, where you said, and often in these situations where you're at a loss, where you found great value in leaning on diverse voices, specifically women of color, um, echoing that one of the most accessible means of integrating those voices into my life and into my thinking and into my experience and discernment of reality has been through the internet, specifically social media platforms. I say Twitter especially, but also things like Facebook, Instagram, and whatnot. And I know there have been seasons where you've also been prolific on those platforms. That's where probably I believe Twitter was probably how I first came across uh, your own work and the podcast and whatnot. And yet at the same time, I have also appreciated and been challenged and educated by, you know, you've spent a lot of time also both taking significant uh, social media breaks recently. Uh, Some of that's for your own just kind of personal health and sustainability, but also because you've become increasingly wary and concerned about the ways that these platforms are being monetized and how their profit models are under uh, underwritten and driven by what turns out to often be destructive behaviors and destructive just tendencies in, in the human psyche that they kind of uh, proliferate and, and, and feed into. And so, can you talk about that? Because I know, because I heard you, you know, express a nuanced kind of both and opinion of social media where I think you've, I've heard you say something to the effect of it doesn't have to be this way. It can be this beautiful, unifying, educating tool. And yet, under the present circumstances, that's not necessarily what we're getting. Twitter Inc. and Facebook Inc. are not good companies. Mm. That's it. They're highly predatory, hyper-capitalistic companies who, in a very big tobacco way, as they've become aware of the medical research on the impact of their products, have sought to hide and bury that information while making their products more addictive. Mm. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are profoundly implicated in an anxiety epidemic among young Mm -hmm. people today. They are highly implicated in global geopolitical strife and unrest. Uh, And again, there's actually nothing wrong with political unrest when it leads toward positive change. That's not Mm -hmm. what's happening right now. Um, They're associated and implicated with higher rates of depression, of suicidality, of compulsive and addictive behaviors, um, of dehumanization, of shrinking the number of friends people have because they form a kind of shallow supernormal stimuli around the social behavioral patterns that emerge from our brains. Social media is not inherently bad. When When I critique corporate social media, as I call it, People hear me saying that all social media is bad. I am not denying that incredible connections happen even on corporate social Mm -hmm. media, that people who are lonely find friendship, they find identity, they find a belonging, Mm -hmm. they find connection. Incredible advocacy happens. Education advocacy happens with marginalized voices on those social media platforms all the time. And that work sells ad Mm -hmm. impressions that make white men richer. So I actually think it's unethical the way that Twitter and Facebook are profiting off the work of marginalized mm-hmm. people. So it's not that I'm anti-social media, but I am absolutely anti-Twitter 
anti-Facebook and anti-Instagram. Now I'm on those platforms. Uh, I tried to leave them and the effect on my income was immediate and severe. So I've tried to be on there in a way that lets me, one, critique those platforms from within them uh, and model healthier patterns of behavior. And on the other hand, I am constantly working to grow and build uh, non-corporate alternatives that allow people to get the positives of social media interaction without corporations controlling and monetizing unhealthy patterns of behavior and psychological and sociological dynamics. Excellent. That's a good answer. <laughs> um, lots and lots and lots on that in my next book. By oh, the way. Nice. Perfect. 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 So just, just to kind of you know, stick on that for just a moment longer. So I know, you know, I know you've talked, you know, you just mentioned you try to build other platforms, but for, you know, the average listener, the average, you know, person who wants to strike a healthy balance, but at the same time, doesn't necessarily in their uh, immediate community or whether it be financially or what have you, doesn't necessarily feel like they have access to, you know, kind of the diversity of voices um, that you might have access to on Twitter or, or through a social media platform. What would, you know, one or two steps or pieces of advice or just kind of safeguards would you kind of keep in mind for someone who is genuinely benefiting from these platforms, but also wants to be increasingly aware and careful and wary of both the negative effects on them personally and and what they're kind of perpetuating as organizations and as institutions and companies more broadly. Are there any, you know, one or two kind of rules of thumb that, that you try to practice in your own life as you kind of balance the, on some level, the necessary evil of kind of being on there and critiquing within while also not wanting to, you know, fall prey to the ways that they monetize, prey on, you know, human anxiety and despair and things like that? Sure. You put them in a fence. Um, don't let the, these apps send notifications mm. to any device you own, not your phone, not your tablet, sure. not your computer. Uh, otherwise, they will constantly try to worm their way into your life. They create a compulsive pattern of behavior so that when you're with people physically, your brain associates the mm -mm of your phone with a potential reward, which creates a surge in dopamine. That is the foundation of compulsive behaviors. Don't let them notify you. Uh, I, don't, uh, I deleted all the apps off mm. my phone. Uh, because that way I'm limiting the amount of information they can harvest from me. Mm. So I access Twitter and Facebook, um, not Instagram, unfortunately, but Twitter and Facebook from their web mm -hmm. pages. And I limit the amount of time per day I do that. I only get on Twitter and Facebook at most twice a day mm. for, you know, for in my case, five or 10 minutes. Uh, and then that's it. That's, I, I do what I can do with that amount of time. You know, there's people on Twitter that I have no other way of keeping up with. Mm. So I kind of go and look at their specific profiles. I don't even really look at <laughs> my <laughs> uh, mentions or whatever you call it, timeline. I, I literally don't even remember what it's called. But um, I go and I look at the profiles of people I really want to keep up with. And uh, those people probably realize that because I like, you know, 10 of their tweets at a time. <laughs> and uh, I really don't use Facebook personally at all anymore. I mean, I use the brand part of yeah. it, but the brand, Science Mike the brand has consumed Mike McCarg, the person on Facebook. So my personal Facebook, I don't even know. I got so many mm -hmm. thousands of friends. I don't really mm -hmm. know any of them. Uh, so there's no point in me releasing Facebook for anything other than uh, the Science Mike yeah. stuff. So yeah, I just think it's about, it's about setting boundaries. I don't use it in the morning at all. I don't use it in the evening at all as much as possible. I just try to keep a nice little 
little fence around it. And doing so has let me stay connected with people and, and do the work I need to do about marketing the work that I do without having these behavioral patterns. And I'll admit my pro- problem with social media today is mm-hmm. forgetting it exists. <laughs> and so I go too long without posting. And so I probably need to set up some kind of a, a regular reminder or calendar event or something that's like, hey, mm-hmm. get on Instagram and post something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing for me is I, some people found me through Twitter and I, I am thankful for that. I just, I say everything I have to think anyway. I'm either write it in a book or say it on a mm-hmm. podcast. So, you know, the only thing I have left to say when I get on Twitter is like, screw <laughs> white supremacy. I'm not sure the rating on this podcast. So I, You're good. I You're good. there for a moment. Oh, no, you can say, you can say fuck I white fuck supremacy. Fuck white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, I'll say it for you. You know, and, and fuck the patriarchy. That's really the only thing I have left kind of energy to do. So then... People get like, like a really mm. one-dimensional picture of me on social media because mm. uh, it's just like I get really frustrated by something I saw on television or whatever, and then I get on Twitter and, and gripe mm. about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say at this point I'm really good at limiting social media <laughs> in my life, but I've gotten, I've gotten actively bad at engaging with it, and I used to be quite good at it. The, I will also say that the mental health cost does grow mm. as your mm, yeah. public profile grows. Um, and that that's mm-hmm. a cycle I've seen frequently. Yeah. Uh, you kind of start on social media and you're just one of the people. And then as your profile grows, you get a level of praise that makes you feel self-conscious mm-hmm. and a level of critique you're mm-hmm. not psychologically equipped mm-hmm. to deal with. And so there's that dynamic as well, but that's that's probably not applicable to most people. Well, I'm married to a therapist, so <laughs> that kind of helps. Okay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and he's an Enneagram 9, so you know, I get all those the even key, the see both sides and <laughs> no, I do not get therapy from my husband, everybody. <laughs> I have seen my own therapist for 7 years. Thank you very much. Wow. So everybody do your work um but it is i mean he my husband actually jesse does talks on social media specifically about the dopamine effect and so very sounds so official (laughs) the dopamine effect (laughs) basically folks when you click or when people click like your brain says hooray and the more you get likes the more your brain wants it (laughs) so yeah We are so close to the uh, the hat trick of pissing off some of my relatives of subject matter <laughs> that uh, that we would be absolutely remiss if we didn't. And, and it's been alluded to and mentioned a few times so far. Uh, but if we didn't riff on climate change, oh, yes. uh, which Let's is actually actually something we haven't had the chance to really. Uh, we have we have some 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 invites out to a few uh, a few people whose whose work and platform are particularly you know postured towards uh, climate change advocacy and things like that but Mike it's obviously something you have discussed a lot and researched a lot and are passionate about yeah and so it, which we all should be passionate about everybody <laughs> hello we're on the planet and so <laughs> and, and so yeah so so let's let's what comes to mind when it comes to, I, I mean, obviously, most of us at this point have probably heard, I know it was mentioned just for context, everyone listening, we're recording this on the night of one of the Democratic debates and a number of the candidates opening statements addressed the existential threat of climate change and the 12-year timetable that we've been given to pretty much halt catastrophic, irreversible, you know, just cascading, you know, kind of cascading upon itself uh, change. And I've seen people say that even that is generous and 
Mm-hmm. There's a chance, Mike, I've heard you say that potentially. And so from a, you know, this is a, a podcast that, that kind of exists often at the inter- intersection of faith and spirituality, justice and liberation work as well, as, and, and then kind of personal interior space work and, you know, that whole notion of permission to be. And so kind of within any or all of those intersections, how should, like, what do you see as the best way that people either personally or collectively should be responding to this existential threat. There are things we can do and should do as individuals to reduce our climate footprint. Mm. We can buy less stuff. We can ship less stuff. We can definitely buy less stuff online. I've been making a concerted effort to reduce the number of Mm -hmm. boxes that arrive on my doorstep. Um, It is more carbon efficient. Even if I'm going to buy an equal number of things, to buy them from stores near my home, you know, where a a single truck went and dropped them at a building as opposed to Mm. uh, dozens of trucks bringing them individually to my home. We can, you know, eat less meat. We can do all those things. But unfortunately, if everybody just adopts right individual actions, we won't have accomplished all that much in mitigating the worst effects of climate change. Very large companies Mm -hmm. and governments have the most power in reducing the amount of carbon our species is putting into the air. Yeah. It's very kind of nefarious. I think a great example is um, littering. Littering became a problem because so many companies started putting their products in disposable packaging Mm -hmm. because it was cheaper for them and increased their profit margins. And communities started to band together and and governments wanted to pass regulations that would affect these companies, telling them, you know, you can't do this. You're destroying the environment. But the companies hired ad firms and PR firms to create a personal responsibility Mm -hmm. campaign around littering, which is where the term litter bug originates. Uh, That's a propaganda campaign from companies trying to make it an individual problem how much pollution is in the environment. Plastic producers are undergoing similar campaigns right now. The fact is the most substantive and necessary changes have to happen in a way that's going to impact the cost of doing business for corporations um, and the social contract we make together as governments, the way we produce energy, the way we operate and regulate the transportation sector, the way that we manage natural resources, especially our forests. uh, These things are beyond the scale and scope of any individual actor. And it means we have to vote for elected leadership Mm. who believes that climate change is happening, who believes that climate change is caused by human activity, and who believes that society has an immediate moral imperative to make major sweeping changes to mitigate the effects of climate change not just in our own countries, but around the world. Elected leaders who believe in not only government action, but intergovernmental cooperation, uh, especially in the states, the United States and in China, the two biggest carbon producers in the world. (laughs) China is ironically making great Mm -hmm. strides faster than the United States. We've really elected some climate Mm -hmm. regressives at... (laughs) what may be the worst time. And don't get me wrong, I've been wildly disappointed uh, with what Democrats have done when they hold office. Don't hear me wrong. Sure, absolutely. But they at least did a little 
whereas the current administration is actively dismantling as much climate legislation and policy as possible while actively suppressing reports from scientists who know what they're talking about. So cards on the table, I'm still trying to I'm still trying to get trigger the relatives bingo here and and not to not to ever suggest that we should replace the uh, science Mike moniker with like comrade Mike moniker or something like that. But, you know, we've mentioned it a few times, but how does our marriage to capitalism and, and, and the way in which the way, because you, you described it perfectly. And I've seen this, you know, our, our spiritual community, Becca and Minds, that we're a part of, you know, we work a lot of nonprofits. These are great nonprofits uh, doing a lot of great work. And yet they're, mm-hmm. they're being bankrolled by these multi-million or billion dollar corporations who are essentially using them as a as an in-house PR firm to get good press relative to you know so you have a nonprofit being funded by a bank that is in large part responsible for the affordable housing crisis in our city and then but then they'll be you know just kind of throwing some money on the side at this nonprofit that's trying to mitigate the problem that the bank kind of cause to begin with. And so I see this cycle repeating itself in all sorts of different sectors, you know, whether it's housing or the climate change or, you know, just wealth disparity and the wealth gap, especially the racial wealth gap and and, and just kind of across the board. And yet we get in these kind of intramural debates where, you know, where we're, we're getting paralyzed by, by buzzwords and by labels and stuff like that, as opposed to, as opposed to, you know, generally kind of having the prophetically imaginative solutions that you're talking about. I mean, you know, like you said, a lot of these things require genuine international coalitions and cooperations and, and kind of looking at it more of as a, on a human level, you know, and yet we're still mired in class disparities and international disparities and, uh, you know, in, in disputes and things like that. I, I guess that was me sort of making some statements as there as well, you know, wanting to check off, check off that bingo card. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> The question is, uh, it's, it's, it's not a question. It's a, it's a, requ- it's a request for further comments. Uh, request for further clarity on what comments would be helpful. <laughs> I guess to kind of bring this full circle, you know, I, I, I now have envisioned uh, we have we have a science mic puppet, a mystic mic puppet, and then maybe a comrade mic puppet, and they can be different. Uh, so you, you want me to announce today on the podcast my public embrace of Marxism <laughs> and uh, leftist Politi- political system. I'm not asking you to do that, but <laughs> but, but, I, but I also wouldn't complain. Uh, I would say that I understand. I don't understand why boomers are mystified that capitalism has a bad rap with millennials and Gen Z. Boom! I'll take it when they see the wealth hoarding, the destruction to the environment. Um, that has gone on with American capitalism, especially since the 1980s. You know, you had this one track of capitalism where the middle class kept growing and there was a dirty secret, you know, in in post-war America about the middle class growth and that this wealth was generated by us getting contracts to rebuild Europe, basically. Mm -hmm. And the wealth we had to fight in the first place uh, was came from slave labor and stolen land. But there was this one track for a while in American capitalism that if it would have parlayed correctly in the civil rights movement, would have been a fundamentally capitalist economy with a strong bent towards social responsibility and a Mm -hmm. social safety net that might have actually created greater economic equality in this country. And then the the 80s got all about greed. Now we'd still be having a terrible climate change problem, Mm -hmm. by the way. 
mm-hmm. just you know we'd all we we just all be much more complicit in it as opposed to white people being uniquely <laughs> complicit in it. Um, yeah, the you know the the problem with capitalism from uh, an environmentalist perspective, from an ecological perspective, is the impetus that an economy must always grow. Mm-hmm. Growth has to come from somewhere. And that's typically the extraction of natural resources from the planet uh, at a rate faster than the planet can restock them, which is the definition of unsustainability. Mm -hmm. So I do agree that we have to take a fundamental look at our economic incentive structures in a way that does not incentivize the destruction of the planet we all live on. Is that leftism? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty bearish on most economic models these days. I'll still take it. Yahtzee. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mike, one of the questions that we have been asking towards the end of our conversations is, what does the word salvation mean to you? I read from page 254 of Finding God in the Waves, released uh, September something, 2016. (laughs) When it says salvation is at least the means by which humanity overcomes sin to produce human flourishing, even if this is all salvation is, spiritual and religious actions and beliefs that promote it are good for humankind. Now, you might say sin is a heavy word. Mm. So let me define sin as well so that there's no ambiguity. Sin is at least volitional action or inaction that violates human consent or produces human suffering. Sin comes from the divergent impulses between our lower and higher brain functions and our evolution-driven tendency to do things that serve ourselves and our tribe above others. Mm. Even if this all that sin is, it is destructive and threatens human flourishing. And I would say here in 2019, I'm still really comfortable with that definition. Mm. Excellent. To hear this and some of Mike McHarg's other axioms, you too can purchase and read Finding God in the Waves. <laughs> and if you like my voice a lot, I did read the audiobook. So if you got audible credit, you don't even have to pay for it. <laughs> Which is how I listen and read most books is <laughs> audible. Oh my God, I just realized I'll have to do another audiobook for my next <laughs> book. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no. What have I done? You got something you have like eight or nine months. So No, no way. Uh, We'll record it way before that. Really? Pretty soon after you lock down the manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Because they have to do their own editing and marketing and promotion. So it's coming. It's imminent. Yeah, probably next next three months. Uh, Merry uh, Christmas. Old fashioned in hand. That would be a great audio (laughs) book. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. My dream is to is to preach old fashioned in hand. That's a that's a bucket list it thing is, for me. Uh... That's a good way to go. <laughs> I, I, I imagine it would go something like this. Uh, I just I'm turning to a random random phrase from. This is the first time I've ever read from the next book publicly. By the way, Ooh. so let me let me get in an old fashioned zone. <laughs> <laughs> I was such a sensitive child. Uh, <laughs> I was bullied often with exquisite cruelty that I've really heard or seen elsewhere, but I also overreacted to the normal play of children. Tears can This is really heavy stuff I to know, read. Funny, I'm, uh, like, I'm laughing and feeling <laughs> awful all at the same time. Yeah. Now, now imagine that exact kind of vocal range. But it's video, 
and it's a puppet. (laughs) (laughs) I got to start working on the next musical. I mean, I kind of locked in. I don't believe anything. The Uh liturgist story. Um, So I don't don't know what this one would be. (laughs) What are all these feelings? Maybe I don't know. Oh, excellent. Oh, so Mike, thank you for spending time with us. My pleasure. You have some events coming up for Taps and Wafers. Is it just you and Vishnu? Just me and Michael. Old school. Old school. Old school. The OGs. (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So when this airs, folks, they will be heading out for their September dates, um, which will be the 21st of September in San Francisco, the 27th in Dallas, Texas, September 28th in Houston, and on the 29th, they will be in the amazing city of Austin, Texas. So everybody make sure to check out those dates as well as all um, upcoming episodes of Ask Science Mike. I'm also speaking at the Christian Transhumanist Conference, October 19th in Nashville. Oh, with with Micah! Micah, So Our very first podcast guest. Yeah, people want to know that as well. Yes, thank you for pointing that out, Mike. If you're in the Nashville area, and even if you're not, usually uh, Mike will post it later. Honestly, take a trip. Spend some days on either side. Go to the Transhumanist Conference. It'll be amazing. You will learn a lot. I promise. I promise. Also, I would suggest if you have not listened to the Liturgist podcast, the new episodes are wonderful. But if you are newly deconstructing your spiritual beliefs, there are two episodes in the earlier seasons. They're called Lost and Found Part 1 and Part 2. And you definitely want to check those out. So, Mike, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being willing to come on and talk about a broad range of topics. And we are so excited for your book to be released. Man, I mean, just the thought of the neural pathways and all of that. I just, I feel like, like you said, you're really excited about this book more than anything. Uh, Tell us again why it's your favorite. It's just been, uh, I spent my entire life trying to figure out how I understand human behavior. And so this book is a trying to distill all that down into something that's useful and applicable in people's daily living. So mm. if you've ever wondered why you've done something mm. or why you're not able to do something that you want to do, mm. this is a book about understanding that and making space for it. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.